Well, I'm standing looking at uh, what might surely be one of the most iconic sights in motorsport. Because I'm standing in pole position on the Goodwood Strait, looking down towards Madgewick, fearsome double apex first bend, which if you're in pole position, you're approaching very quickly. Uh, I've just noticed somebody has uh, recreated the Viva Gurney on the uh, track. Dan Gurney, the great American racing driver. And um, I'm wearing my Dan Gurney badge, having interviewed him many, many years ago. So standing in front of the grandstands, it's very, very early in the morning. And there's nobody in the grandstands yet, but people are setting up around the, the track and around the paddock area. In the uh, lull before the storm, a moment of quiet reflection. The uh, memorial garden to the memory of those that have passed away here, some from the military, but the one I'm particularly standing in front of, well, I guess the uh, kiwi on the uh, headstone is a bit of a giveaway. Because Bruce McLaren was killed here in 1970. 43 years old, engineer, constructor, champion and friend. And I was here when the stone was dedicated many, many years ago in the late 1980s. Can I talk to you about the, uh, the C-type? Sure. This is gentleman is Frederick Wakeman, who's about to uh, go out for first practice in this glorious C-type. It's a wonderful looking car. I have driven actually one once, a long time ago. One of my favorite cars of all time. How long have you owned this car, sir? I've owned it for about five years. And it's uh, a really special thing. It's um, a works C-Type. So Sterling Moss raced this in 53 um, for the works team. Probably the most important meeting was uh, the Silverstone meeting uh, that year. It had a pretty big prang in it. Uh, and then they, they took it to the, back to the workshop and uh, put it back together uh, for the next day after qualifying and uh, finished that race. Well, it looks like you've got plenty of scrutineer stickers, so clearly this is not a museum car. You're using it. Oh, no, this car goes out quite a bit. I mean, it gets invited to the revival as a result of its, of its history, um, and it's just a lovely, really balanced car, and not just a great race car, but a fantastic road car. Really, really fun to drive on the road. Uh, I drove one which was road legal. Uh, as I say, and it was just great fun, but I, I took a neighbour for a run in it who pleaded he wanted out and he had to get his wife to come and collect him because it, it, it just shakes and it's noisy and it's it's everything you really want in a race car or in a road car absolutely that's the charm of it right is you have to um i mean it's very visceral and uh the gearbox is a little recalcitrant but so you have to you have to heel and toe and all those sort of things but you know that's the rewarding part of driving these cars you have to put a lot of effort in but when you're when you drive it properly you're really rewarded Stuff. Thank you very much. Well, enjoy your practice. I see you've, you, you, you've actually got another driver with you as well. I see exactly, Sam. Sam's just turned up as well. So. Exactly. Anyway, have a good time. Thank Cheers. you. Thank Thanks you. a lot. The uh, Ford GT40 BTP7B is the one that uh, I and Mike Turner, formerly of UK Motor Talk, now retired, as I probably should be, but he and I both drove this car uh, on test, on the road. It is road legal. 
It's belonged to Ford UK for many, many years and is quite amazing in all respects. And you can easily see how they won uh, Le Mans with it, uh, albeit that this is a road car. Yes, it's of the sort that was sort of driven by Noel Edmonds and uh, uh, the, the superstars of the era. But as I was just saying to the driver, absolutely impossible to reverse. You can't see a damn thing out the back. It's very touch sensitive, but you don't want to damage anything. Fabulous drive, though. This is a, uh, a festival that celebrates all things 40s, 50s and 60s. What could be better to celebrate with that than a Chevy truck? Exactly. <laughs> Nothing can be better than a Chevy truck. 1956, yeah. last year with a ball nose front and uh, it's fabulous, just original old truck, not, not restored, unrestored truck. So you've, how long have you owned this one? Uh, we've had it over here about 10 years now. Come straight from the States, as it is. We haven't touched it, just literally drove, drive it like it is. Straight, standard engine, everything standard on it, yeah. Your name, sir? Cliff from Ace Classics. Well, look up Ace Classics, yeah. certainly. So you've got to go out right now? We're picking the bikes up after, if anything breaks down, we're just on a breakdown service. Oh, I see, I see, yeah. I see, that's, that's why. So you're rigged to yeah. do that? Yeah, we, we come down and do it every year. We've been doing it for the last uh, sort of 10 years, I think. That's all that's in the truck before? Yeah. Oh, well. Let's hope you're not needed. Especially our own bike out there. Indeed. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, you've just caught my eye this stand. This is your personal collection. Your name, please. Um, it's Edna Dickinson. And uh, this is a wonderful collection of, um, what, early 40s? So a lot of it is, some of it's pre-war and some of it's wartime. Um, so everything you see here in the make do and men display is leaflets that would have been available at the time Mrs so and so encouraging you to make do and men to patch and darn and sew and it's giving everyone a little flavour of some of the items that would have been re-knitted so you'd have undone jumpers and re-knitted them so it's giving people a little flavour of what you could get and then we've got the utility clothing in the other display there so it's giving what it's showing is that everything in the wartime years, yeah. when utility was introduced, everything from your handkerchief to your tablecloth to your bra to your children's clothing, all was on the utility scheme. So it's giving visitors today a little flavour of rationing and point system and what people went through. Let's just move around and have a look at the food, which is around the other side. Will you follow me around? So tell me about the, the food. It's not real food, I know, but tell me about it. So what we've got on display here is a week's ration and people are really surprised how little people had but it's 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 not to show what little people had because it would have been one shilling two pence worth of meat it's showing how resourceful people had to be with their food and how we bulked everything out with vegetables and it's got your two months ration of jam there and your powdered egg and your milk 
and your sweets. We've got hundreds and thousands on display here because lots of people I spoke to that were children in the war would say, because it was all done by weight, yes. if you went for boiled sweets, you got about five. Whereas if you went for hundreds and thousands, it just looked like you got lots of sweets for your ration. And we've also got display tea, things like lard was part of your ration. When we talk to children, when they come to see us, they're fascinated with what it is because you just don't really use or see lard anymore like we used to and the money. Um, but at the back of the display there, we have our tins and packaging because you had things on the point system and then it was all really, really heavily bulked out with vegetables. So how long have you been collecting all of this material? Oh gosh, about 15 years now. And because we do lots of talks and displays, people donate things to us which we put back out on display again because there's so many things that just get thrown away now sadly that, that we're losing part of people's past and so a lot of these leaflets like the what to do with your powdered egg and cooking for one all these leaflets that are available in the wartime to help you um, are sort of slowly disappearing. Sadly well thank you it's a wonderful display and a, a credit to you that you've put together such a collection and of course it follows the theme for this year which is Thrive and Survive. Absolutely, yes, and it's a really good way of showing that we've done it before and we can do it again and, and we've just got to be resourceful and make the most of what we have and reuse it which is something we're getting a lot better at and, and turning things into something else which they, they got very resourceful at during the wartime years. Your name sir? Jeremy Mudford. And I'm Ken Aitken. And you two are the sort of designated experts because... Well, I've we're taking tours of people around the aircraft. Okay, to we're both pilots who fly currently from here. Right, okay, so gentlemen, <laughs> we have quite a number of planes collected here, but I particularly wanted to focus on the World War II planes because West Hampton was obviously was a fighter base too in World War II. And are there some planes of that ilk here, yes, of that period? Are. Over the other side, not here, yeah. there are another seven Spitfires which are all part of the West Hampton fighter wing during the war. Yeah. But they're not in this display here. These are mostly classic aircraft which yeah. have got separate interests of their own. But there is a Spitfire and a Hurricane. Well, I noticed that there was both. I mean, the Hurricane is a sort of yeah. uh, the, the forgotten the one almost, is an isn't it? It's Hurricane because it's a two-seater and they only did that after the war. So there were no two-seater Spitfires or Hurricanes in the war. So the young pilots were put straight into one of these single-seaters and went off to fly them. So, so they'd come out of what was effectively a biplane or a trainer. Mars, Mars Magister or a, or a Tiger Moth. The Mars Magister was a two-seater, uh, a little aeroplane with a small engine, and it was built deliberately to train potential Spitfire pilots because it was a similar sort of aeroplane, but it, was, it, was, it had a little engine, so it didn't go fast. Unsurprisingly, a lot of them didn't uh, survive their first combat contact. Well, a lot of lives were lost, yeah, because they hadn't learned to fly the aeroplane. Many of them didn't even survive their training. Yeah. Yeah. There were more pilots killed in training than there were actually in combat. Yeah, essentially because, because of that fact. I mean, they, the first time they ever sat in a Spitfire was the first time they flew it. And, uh, and that's quite. That's, that's quite frightening. I mean, that's that's the motorsport equivalent of that. I guess would be jumping in a Formula One car, sure uh, straight from uh, a mini. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure that would be right. Yeah. But so then I, I listened to a chap being interviewed the other day who was a bomber pilot who'd flown uh, wartime bombers with four Rolls Royce Merlin engines at the age of 19. And the interviewer said to him, "How do you feel about that?" And he said, "Well, I couldn't even drive a car." And suddenly the Royal Air Force gave me four Rolls-Royce Merlin engines. He said, 
wonderful. <laughs> uh, well, I think that was the case with a lot of the American pilots. They, they weren't old enough to, to for, for driving licenses, but they were flying over Berlin. Well, people forget things like, I mean, Guy Gibson, who was the senior officer on the, on the Dambusters raid, was 23. The senior officer. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for your time. It's much appreciated. And it's, it's nice to see that the aircraft are here and people still respect them. I mean, I'm very lucky. I've got a, a Spitfire base not very far from where I live, so it frequently where does do you, practice. Uh, well, I live on the Kent-Sussex border, so uh, I can't remember the name of the airfield, but there's a Spitfire flies out of there, and it flies along the uh, Rother Valley, which is more or less at the bottom of my garden. So Yeah, it could be Woodchurch, yes. I get frequent displays almost every yeah. day. So. Yeah. Well, the sound of the Spitfire makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. Well, yeah, I'm not quite of that generation, but it has that effect on me as well. You never, you never tire of it. I mean, they fly here from here every day, and yeah. it's lovely to see them. I guess, you know, this is Goodwood, and it's hardly surprising to find a stand full of Rolls Royces, very English company, and a very English company has made something of a history for itself, selling Rolls Royces. Thank you, this is P&A Wood, it's Georgina Wood, uh, so I'm daughter of the P from P&A Wood, we're the Rolls Royce and Bentley dealers, and we restore, service and maintain and sell all Rolls Royce and Bentley models. We started in 1967, formally, and they're identical twin brothers that started from nothing, worked very, very hard with a dirt floor rented barn and have uh, really been extremely successful. Well, I can see that by the quality of the, the product we have on, on here. I mean, the Continental, absolutely gorgeous. That's what, mid-50s, late-50s? It's a mid-50s car. It's an R-type Continental fastback, a very desirable post-war Bentley. And I mean, just a wonderful collection of Rolls Royces mm -hmm. and Bentleys, and particularly, well, tell me about this. So this is your centerpiece. Uh, it is indeed. It's a 1912 Rolls Royce Silver Ghost, London to Edinburgh. We restored the car about 20 years ago now, but it's been extremely well maintained since. Done lots of touring and rallying, and it's our centerpiece for today because it's such a striking-looking car. This is really the point at which Rolls-Royce really made its name with the reliability rallies and, and the fact that it could cover huge distances absolutely reliably. Yes, indeed, 1907 they did the uh, Scottish reliability trials, we were extremely successful with that, uh, with the first Silver Ghosts, and that meant that the Silver Ghost went on to earn them the name the best car in the world, and they carried on with the model till 1925, so it was a very long run of lots of very reliable Rolls-Royces. Well, you're now in uh, Goodwood being the, the now home of Rolls-Royce, yeah. so you are very close to the factory, literally just down the road. Do you get much contact with them? Do they, I mean, they're aware of you? Yes, we're a franchise dealer. Right, uh, so uh, we literally work on all Rolls-Royce models from 1904 to present day, and all of the current model range we can supply as well. But those skills for the older cars are few and far between. If you've got craftsman skills like that, you hang on to them. Yes, we do, and we, we are investing heavily in uh, apprentices as well so that we can keep those crafts going. Good. So a successful future, you think, for the company? Definitely, Definitely. yes. Yeah, the future's uh, bright. Yeah. And this is the place to be seen. I mean, do you actually expect that you'll sell anything here, or is it just about showing the flag? It's, it's really waving the flag, but um, sometimes afterwards people will come back and see us about certain models they've seen on the stand. Good for you. 
well, I hope it all goes well. Enjoy your weekend. Thanks for your time. Goodwood is very full of characters. It always has been right from the very start. But one of my sort of childhood heroes, I guess, Norman Wisdom. I, I watched you do a performance years ago when I was about seven or eight years old, and I laughed so hard I weed myself. Really? Yep. And what so, was that in then? Can you remember what I it was? Draw, it was on TV. It was, it was on the TV? Yeah. It was, um, so it wasn't a pantomime then, was it? No, 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 um, no. Oh, I'm trying to think now. But could it, oh, uh, oh, no, you're getting me at it now. Uh, it's definitely not a pantomime. Um, Royal Variety, maybe? Royal, oh, the Royal Variety Show yeah. for Her Majesty the Late You Majesty did Majesty. everything. Oh, yeah. And oh, some yeah. of us are old enough to remember you, but the youngsters are walking past you. They don't realise no, who you are. And that's it. Whatever. But the great thing is, as you're aware, people love characters. Exactly. And because Norman portrayed a character, which was the Gump, yeah. for some strange reason, it, it does linger, without a doubt. It lingers long in the memory. Oh, it, it certainly does. Oh, yeah. Yes, it does. You're dead right. Just very nice to talk to you. I hope you're enjoying yourself. I'm enjoying I, myself. Are you enjoying yourself? I, well, I'm enjoying myself. I mean, I'm, ta I'm talking to you. What more could I ask? Yeah, well, I've, uh, I've seen thousands of people here. Uh, this is my first time, actually, as a visitor to Goodwood. I haven't done it before, but I'm here today, possibly tomorrow. So if you're around tomorrow, whatever, I may be here tomorrow, possibly on Sunday as well, is it? Right. What is it? Friday, Saturday and Sunday, isn't it? Oh, Friday, Saturday, I think I got it right, yeah. Friday, Saturday and Sunday. Well, in that case, we'll come back and talk to you again. Yeah, right. Thank you, Norman. Okay. That's all right. Thank you very much. You mind, there you go. <coughs> Mr. Grimsdale. Yeah. Well, don't start me off. No, please don't. We're standing in front of well, what to all intents and purposes is a scrapped vehicle. It's rather more than that. This is a very, very important racing car. The man who knows all about it is Doug Nye, historian to Goodwood, writer of many books on the subject, and you've done all the research on this car. Yes, well, we have a photograph on the wall here, which many of you, I'm sure, will have seen in colour in recent publications of Bruce McLaren sitting on pole position here at Goodwood for the 1964 Tourist Trophy race. And the car he's sitting in is a Cooper Zerex Oldsmobile. And this extraordinary car was sold a year later to Texas. And it was then sold from Texas to South America. And it's lived for the past 57 years in South America. And I found it there with some friends really about 15, maybe even 20 years ago now. And eventually the very pleasant family who've owned it and preserved it for all these years decided that it was time to let it go. And it returned to England in June. It is a car with an extraordinary story and it is extraordinarily important because it started life in 1961 as a Formula One Cooper. It was sold to the Briggs Cunningham team, raced by the great Walt Hansgen in the United States Grand Prix and crashed. It was then bought, wrecked, by Roger Penske at the start of his career. Roger Penske had an idea to rebuild it, this single-seater, with the centerline seat into a sports car form, but keeping the seat in the centre. 
and clad in a very lightweight aluminium body, very streamlined body. And in that form, with a 2.7 litre Indianapolis Coventry Climax engine, it was a very lightweight sports racing car and he immediately won all the major races in America with it. They changed the regulations at the end of the year saying that centre line seats not on, you've got to have two equal size seats, one each side of the centre line. So he had the car, the centre section of it, re-chassied and continued to race it as the Zarek Special but looking very different now. And amongst the people he beat was Bruce McLaren, the works number one driver in his works Cooper Monaco. And Bruce was so impressed with the performance of the Xerex, he then bought the car from Roger Penske for 1964. He won two international races with it with a 2.7 litre Climax engine installed, but realised it needed more power. He'd bought it with a three and a half litre Oldsmobile V8. And that Oldsmobile V8 was craned into the engine bay, but it was the engine bay of a rebuilt chassis. And they cut out the wibbly-wobbly Roger Penske chassis and built a straight-tube chassis for it. With the Oldsmobile engine installed, he then went to Mossport in Canada and won the Players 200 race there, beating the likes of uh, Chaparral. And then came back home with a larger Oldsmobile engine installed. He won the Guards Trophy at Brands Hatch and then started on pole position for the TT and set fastest lap and led the race, which included Jim Clark in a Lotus 30 and Graham Hill in a four-litre Ferrari, who eventually won. So what we have before us here in this remarkably historic heap of tubes is a truly, truly historic survivor and to have found it in South America after all those years. It's been there for 57 years and we were able to bring it back and it's being offered here for sale right now and a tremendous amount of perfectly justifiable interest has been shown in it. Join us tomorrow for more highlights from the 2022 Goodwood Revival. UK Motor Talk, a first take media production.